Ah, what is up, people? Welcome back. Episode two of the Merlot and the Mob podcast. Ryan, how you doing, bud? I'm good, man. Uh, we upgraded this week. Instead of me speaking into a crusty sock, I, I now have a white sock, which looks like a microphone condom. It really does. So <laughs> any large ox areas, look out. You know what they say. Once you go microphone, you, you can't walk. You, uh, no. Never, never again. And uh, that microphone definitely has some penis-esque qualities. Yeah. So I hope you're enjoying that. Not um, really. Me and Ryan are enjoying this $8 bottle of Yellowtail Merlot. That is a mouthful. That's really hard to say. A lot mm. of L's in there. Um, but yeah, we're keeping it cheap this week uh, because I'm broke. Bang, bang. Um, we got a lot of feedback based on last week's episode, which is our first, which you know completely makes sense because we pretty much won it. Um, for that first one, it was on Whitey Bulger, if you remember, and it was uh, nearly two hours long. So um, I condensed this one today. Uh, we are still taking it right from the Wikipedia page. We're still, you know, drinking wine, and and you can drink along with us. Um, we're we're still doing the the sit per murder, the sit per arrest, and then after that, the rules. Uh, they kind of got a little wonky on us there last week. So uh, we'll just do the one sip rule for now, because uh, yeah, there's going to be a decent amount of murder in this one, a decent amount of arrests. Um, but yeah, we're going to get better. We're going to try to condense it this week. We are profiling Vincent Gigante. Ryan, what do you know about Vincent Gigante? Absolutely nothing. Last names ends in a vowel. It's got to be Italian. <laughs> it's very, very Italian. I'm glad you don't know too much about him because his life was hilarious. It really was. He was a pretty funny guy, um, but not intending to be funny at all. Intending to be crazy, though, for sure, as we'll see. Uh, let's get into it. Vincent Gigante was born in the Lower East Side of Manhattan to Salvatore Esposito Volgo Gigante, a jewel engraver, and Yolanda Santa Cecilia, a seamstress. His parents were first-generation immigrants from Naples, Italy, and never learned the American... I'm sorry, the, did I just say... I almost said American language. They never learned the English language. Um, no, I did not vote for Trump. Um, I hate his ass. I don't know why I almost said American language, the English language. They never learned English. I don't know how you get through that life. I don't know, man. They, well, I think the Lower East Side was very Italian at the time, and they could probably just never leave the neighborhood. Hair of the dog. <laughs> yeah, it's a good bar. Yeah. It's a good bar. Yeah, this one's kind of residing, not in our hometown, but very close. Um, Gigante's nickname was the Chin, and it derived from his mother's use of the Italian pronunciation of his given name, Vincenzo. He had four brothers, Mario, Pasquale, uh, and Ralph. Wait, four brothers, Mario, Pasquale, and Ralph, which followed him into a life of organized crime before passing away in 1994. Uh, his last brother, Louis Gigante, became an ordained Roman Catholic priest at St. Anathesis, oh my God, F -F 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 in the South Bronx and city councilman. So you got three brothers who joined the mafia uh, and then one brother who became a priest. This is the most Italian family I've ever came in contact with, <laughs> aside from the Ralph, but you have a priest in a Roman Catholic church and these names are unbelievable. Who do you think the mother was the most proud of? I think the priest. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I probably have to yep. agree with you there. Uh, as a teenager, Gigante became the protege of the Genovese crime family patriarch Vito Genovese and Philip Lombardo. Between the ages of 17 and 25, he was arrested seven times on charges ranging from stolen goods, possession of an unlicensed handgun, and for illegal gambling and bookmaking. We cheers to that. We drink to that. Mm-hmm. 
That is uh, many arrests right there. Most of the allegations were dismissed and the longest sentence he served was 60 days for the illegal gambling conviction. His brother Lewis insisted that Vincent had, t- had a tested IQ, a tested IQ of 39. 39. That is, um, j- that is just so low. That, Incredibly low. Yeah, that's like borderline not speaking, not being able to like have an interaction with another person. Oh, we'll see. We'll see. Jesus. His mother, Yolanda, when questioned about her son's alleged leadership of the Genovese crime family, she said, Vincenzo, he's the boss of the toilet. <laughs> From your mom. That's, right. you know, the one who should be the most proud of you is yep. saying you're the boss of the toilet. A psychiatrist retained by his relatives said in an affidavit that Vincent suffers from auditory and visual hallucina- hallucinations and delusions of persecution. Um, Vincent Gigante was, for a short time, a uh, professional light heavyweight boxer. He fought 25 matches and lost four, boxing 117 total rounds. During his successful boxing career, he fought in the light heavyweight division. His first professional boxing match, was, boxing match sorry, was against Vic Chambers on July 18, 1944, in Union City, New Jersey, which he lost. He then fought Chambers a second time at the St. Nicholas Arena on June 29, 1945, and defeated him. He defeated him again on June 29th, 1945 at Madison Square Garden. This guy boxed at Madison Square motherfucking garden. Well, we know where, uh, where all this crime came from. He's been hit in the face hundreds of times. The CTE was definitely C- there. CTE's there. 100%. He's already has prior mental illness. And my foot can do better math than he can. <laughs> I think it's body. safe to say, yeah, your your foot could at least do multiplication tables. Yeah. For sure. I have farts that are smarter than, than that person. <laughs> yeah. I, I've I've heard your farts talk before. They uh, they're definitely smarter. Pretty intelligent. For sure. Um, he also fought again at the Garden against Luther McMillan on March 8th, 1946, which he won uh, against B- Buster Pepe, which he lost. And his last match was against Jimmy Slade, which he lost at the Ridgewood Grove in Brooklyn, New York. During this match, he was severely cut over the right eye, causing the referee to stop the fight and award it to Slade. This is the first and only time Gigante was ever stopped. Slade was a top contender and the fight was a vicious affair until the stoppage. So he was a pretty good boxer, man. Yeah. He went 25 and 4. It's pretty good. That's yeah, it a, 117 rounds is a lot of boxing. A lot of getting hit in the dome. Almost in the golden age of boxing, too. Yeah. If he would have stuck with it. I yeah. Mean. I think that was, yeah, in the 40s. Yeah. Absolutely, man. That's around like Mark, Rocky Marciano yep. and all those. Um, nice. All right. We're stepping into the criminal career of Vincent Gigante now. Gigante earned his mafia credentials as an enforcer in the 1950s. He worked in the Greenwich Village crew, a group of mobsters in Greenwich Village that was overseen by Vito Genovese and later Anthony Strollo. It's right across the water. Yeah, it's pretty funny how now there's hipsters in coffee yeah. bars like butt-chugging espressos. <laughs> and back in the day, there was illiterate people doing illegal Illiterate things. mob bosses in Greenwich it's Village where uh, I get my eggs benedict on Saturday yeah, yeah. and my mimosa on. Dog. Yeah, there's girls <laughs> puking up mimosas <laughs> on the sidewalk now. And Are you my Uber? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Jesus. Jesus Christ. It's a great area, though. I love it over there. Um, nice. Gigante was a protege of Genovese. Uh, between age 17 and 25, Gigante was arrested seven times on charges of receiving stolen goods, possession of an unlicensed handgun, auto theft, arson, and bookmaking. So that's just more arrests after he was arrested earlier when he was like in his, what, 14, 15? Yikes. He only received one jail sentence, 60 days for an illegal gambling conviction. That's two sips. Um, that's jail arrests. Yeah, we're going to do that. 
Mm-hmm. What is an illegal gun in the 40s? That doesn't make any sense. There's no illegal way to, what? Illegal gun. No, illegal gambling conviction. I thought you said illegal gun. No. Gotcha. Okay. There, there will you. What you could have a gun. You didn't have to have a gun permit back in the day. Was that what you were saying? I don't know, but I feel like there wasn't a good system to keep track of that. So I don't understand how they would get convicted of. Anything. I feel like if they found an unlicensed firearm in your possession, they'd probably still arrest you back in the day. But not if you're a mafia guy. They'd, yeah. Yeah, they'd probably let that one go. On May 2nd, 1957, Vito Genovese ordered Gigante to murder Genovese family boss Frank Costello, a close friend and successor of Lucky Luciano, the best-known underworld figure in the United States. Gigante shot Costello as he entered the lobby at 115 Central Park West, where he had an apartment in the Majestic on the corner of 72nd Street. Just as Gigante fired his 38 caliber handgun, Costello moved, causing the bullet to graze the right side of his head. Because Costello fell down, Gigante thought the mob boss was dead and sped away in a black Cadillac. Costello refused to identify his attempted assassin, leading Gigante to thank Costello in court. But the doorman at 115 Central Park West did. When tried for the shooting, his defense team effectively challenged the credibility of the doorman, and Gigante was acquitted in 1958 on charges of attempted murder. That's some gangster shit right there. You get shot in the, in the fucking face, and don't tell who did it. Yeah, that's that's pretty. That is a drastic difference from what we talked about yeah. last week with I all was the rats. Literally, just yeah. about to say that Whitey Bulger could have learned a thing yeah. or two. See, but this is the Italian, Italian way. Agreed. Yeah, and these are like the true mobsters of the '30s, '40s, and '50s. Yeah. Like they grew up in the shit. These are true OGs yeah. right here. Um, nice. In 1959, Gigante was convicted with Vito Genovese of heroin trafficking and sentenced to seven years in prison. He was paroled after five. Not long afterward, he was promoted from soldier to captain, running the Greenwich crew. He was involved in bookmaking and loan sharking and was immersed in labor racketeering in New York City's construction and haulage industries. The crew controlled much of organized crime throughout downtown Manhattan, and Gigante went on to become one of the most powerful capos in the New York Mafia from the early 70s until his promotion to boss in 1981. Some of the rackets included labor union control, gambling, loan sharking, hijackings, again with the hijackings, and extortion of businesses. Through his brother Mario, who later became a capo of his own crew, the Gigantes maintained influence in the Bronx, Yonkers, and Upper Westchester. Gigantes' closest associates included his brother Mario and sons Andrew and Vincent. Now, this is his rise to crime boss. In 1981, Genovese's successor, the ultra-secretive Philip Benny Squint. Benny Squint Lombardo. How does Philip Lombardo get a nickname Benny Squint? Paladores. <laughs> you think Paladors. he saw? they saw the Sandlot? I don't know, man. That's a... Uh, maybe there's something more. Yeah. Did you see it's the 25th anniversary of that? Or I it did. was a few days ago? Did. did you see that they're writing a prequel to the original Sandlot? I'm not sure if you're going to like that or not. I'm not going to like it. It's but. not a remake, though. It's like, it's about the beast. It's about the dog. Okay. So like it's, it's around it. But right. yeah, that's, uh, it'll be good. Yeah, it'll be good. we'll check it out. Yeah. Uh, Gigante strengthened the family's stranglehold of some of New York City's most lucrative rackets, including the New York Coliseum, Jacob K. Javits Center, and the Concrete Club. He controlled outright the, how, uh, the House Wreckers Union, Local 95 of the Laborers Unions. In 1984, Local 95 Union officials President Joseph Sherman, business manager Stephen McNair, and Secretary Treasurer John Rashtecki were convicted of labor racketeering in connection with extortion 
extortion from a contractor, Chavon Chase Corporation. Additionally, he made Anthony Fat Tony Salerno the front boss of the Genovese crime family. Since Genovese's death in 1969, the family had appointed a series of front bosses to fool law enforcement and protect the real boss. Despite this, it was an open secret among New York mobsters that Gigante was the real boss. When new members were inducted into the other families, they were told that Gigante was the boss of the Genovese family. In 1986, Salerno was convicted on charges of murder and racketeering and sentenced to 100 years in prison. Cheers. Sure. Jesus Christ. Mm. Can you imagine just standing in front of a judge and the judge gives you 100 years in prison? That's just the biggest fuck you ever. Yeah, you're not even getting like, you don't even have like a way out from death. You're just there until you die on your own. You're going to rot in prison. Yeah, you're dead. Yeah, life without parole ain't no joke. What was called the Mafia Commission Trial. The Genovese family informant Vincent Cafaro revealed to the FBI during the trial that Salerno was just a figurehead. Gigante had been the real boss of the family since 1981. Before then, the FBI had missed a number of clues that Gigante was the real boss. For instance, FBI bugs caught several instances of mafiosi discussing how Gigante had ordered murders. Under mafia rules, a power solely reserved to the boss. Most tellingly, an FBI bug captured a conversation in which Salerno and Capo Matthew Matty the Horse Ionello were reviewing a list of prospective candidates to be made in another family. Uh, Matty the Horse. What do you think you got that one from? Oh, that's a tough one. We can go a couple ways with that one. It could I, either I, be his physical features. My mind went to just the dirtiest region immediately. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Just the guy's got a forearm. However... We could we could go back to the we could circle it back to the the gambling and the horse racing. Okay, Who yeah, knows? maybe he's just the best like horse bookie gambler guy. Like he wins him a lot of money on the track, yeah, basically. Or he really likes horses, like sexually <laughs> likes horses. Some bestiality going yeah. on there. That's that's kind of what I was going yep. for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, frustrated that the nicknames of the wannabes hadn't been included, Salerno shrugged and said, "I'll leave this up to the boss." So. Um, Basically, it sounds like he didn't want anyone to know he was the boss, but they, but he did at the same time. Yeah, basically. and they're really serious about nicknames here. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> In response, Gigante left the front boss post vacant until 1992. Gigante was reclusive, managing to never be picked up on a wiretap by the FBI or other law enforcement agencies and to remain on the streets longer than all of his contemporaries. He almost never left his home unoccupied because he knew FBI agents would sneak in and plant a bug. His discipline and care differed sharply from that of other mob figures. Figures. Most notably, his main rival, John Gotti, who there will definitely be an episode oh, about, absolutely. the boss of the Gambino crime family. Gigante made, made Venero Benny Eggs Mangano. Benny Eggs Mangano from Venero Mangano. I, I, I have nothing for that one. Dude. I'm Benny I'm Eggs? Yikes. His underboss and sent orders only through his closest associates, thereby insulating himself from the other family's bosses and lower-ranking wise guys. When necessary to speak to fellow mobsters, he only whispered, so he couldn't be picked up by wiretap and never discussed criminal business on the phone. He also sent word to his soldiers that anyone who mentioned his name would be killed on the spot, and any, and any mobster in another family who mentioned his name would face severe punishment. When his men had to refer to him, they either pointed to their chins or made a C, with their thumb and their forefinger. Just like that. Just like a Crips in the blood. Crab. Yeah, or like a crip. Jesus. Pointing to the chin though, that's pretty cool. Yeah, man, this guy's actually relatively smart from a criminal perspective. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't really relate to his IQ at all. Yeah, he's not definitely not a rat. Um, pretty smart at avoiding the just you know feds. Known. Yeah, basically. Um, we're about to get to why he was so good at that and why he stayed out for so long, stayed out in public for so long. Gigante was responsible for ordering the murders of Philadelphia crime family mobsters Antonio Cappuccinero, Fred Salerno, and Frank Sedone for the unsanctioned 1980 murder of Philadelphia boss Angelo Bruno and Philadelphia mobsters Frank Narducci, Narducci, and Rocco Marinucci. The Marinucci. The family Marinucci. For the unsanctioned murder of Philip Testa, Bruno's successor. I got a drink to that one. I'll that tell you like what. Four murders. In I'll a tell row. you what. Anytime that somebody's murdered in Philadelphia it makes me a bit happy. You've been on a It's Always Sunny binge. Yeah, plus I, the, the city itself is just horrid. So Yeah, just a, a little info on Ryan. He is from Pittsburgh. Uh, they do not get along. The, the two biggest cities in PA, they, they really have a hate hate relationship. I don't think there's a lot of love there. What's the. Uh, What's the worst story you got on Philly? Oh, I can't even. Being screamed at while I'm peeing in a bathroom for wearing a Steelers shirt gotcha. by like ten people, and I'm all I'm trying to do is just take a leak, like wash my hands. This is like dick out. This is they're dick just out. yelling. They're just at yelling you. at me. Right? Were you ear. afraid they were gonna like pull you off or like kick into you? Remember, I used to do that in middle school. You yeah, like, but dude, I kick into the kid. Yeah, but I mean. It's hard to, you don't want you don't want me to pee on you, right? So like you're gonna just fit, like verbally abuse and then maybe physical after I put the dick back in. Okay, yeah, that's good. Yeah, at least I didn't attack you that way. Yeah, um, that sounds pretty rough. Yeah, it was bad, man. But like not rough at the same time, you know? Yeah, I was just okay. like soft, but I just want to take a pee. That's all. <laughs> During his tenure as boss of the Genovese family, after the imprisonment of John Gotti, Gigante would come to be known as the figurehead capo de tutti capi, the boss of all bosses in Italian, even though the position had been abolished with the murder of Salvatore Medenzano in 1931. Now, this is literally titled Feigning Legal Insanity. In 1969, Gigante started feigning mental illness to escape criminal prosecution. He escaped conviction on bribery charges by producing a number of prominent psychiatrists who testified that he was legally insane. Smart guy, man. The doctor said Gigante had schizophrenia, dementia, psychosis, and other disorders. Gigante allegedly enlisted his mother and wife to help him in these deceptions. The government had many psychiatrists examine Vincent. These psychiatrists said that Gigante was neither competent to stand trial nor to be sentenced. Even when not under indictment, he prepared for inevitable charges knowing the FBI was watching him. Almost every day, he would return from his residence to his mother's apartment at 225 Sullivan Street in Greenwich Village and emerge dressed in a bathrobe and pajamas or a windbreaker and shabby trousers. That looks like your uh, Tuesday look. Yeah, that that's kind of like Sunday. Sunday <laughs> yeah, me. your Sunday look. Typical Sunday. Yeah, that's like the hungover look of yeah. every millennial ever. Absolutely. <laughs> Accompanied by one or two bodyguards, he crossed the street to the Triangle Civic Improvement Association, a dingy storefront club that served as his headquarters where he played, uh, p- do you know what? P-I-N-O-C-H-L-E. Is that Pinolche? Do you know that game? No, I do not. I don't know what that is. And held whispered conversations with his associates. Man, that sounds like the fucking life, dude. Just like putting on some like basically pajamas and just going to hang with your boys and playing like a board game all day. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Meanwhile, you're trafficking drugs, arms, killing people. 
you're just making money hand over fist for not doing anything while pl- while just hanging out. That literally sounds like the life. In 1990, however, Gigante was arrested and charged with racketeering and murder. In 1997, he was brought to trial. Wait, 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 wait. He, in 1990, he was arrested, and then in 97, he was brought to just seven years. It took him seven years to get to trial for the for murder, a murder trial. Wow. That's nice. that's pretty uh pretty. But Panolce is a Panochle. Pinochle, okay. Is a card game. Oh, nice. We'll go, we'll go over the rules after yeah. this. During that time period, Gigante's lawyers produced witness after witness who testified that Gigante was mentally ill and unfit to stand trial. That's, so they basically just yeah. delayed it and delayed it and delayed it. There Got it, it. The delay allowed Gigante's legal team to use the Windows Racket case as a preview of the government's case against Gigante. This gambit backfired when four high-ranking members of other families began to cooperate with the government in the early 1990s. Uh-oh. Foremost among the uh, cooperating witnesses was Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano, former underboss of the Gambino crime family. You've heard of him, right? Uh, I've not actually. I know really? the Gambino crime He's, family, not uh, him specifically. Yeah, well, that was a Gotti. That was like what Gotti ran over. Yeah. Um, we're gonna do an episode okay. on Sal Gravano because right. he was a scumbag. Uh, who became a cooperating witness in 1991. Gravano testified that he had met Gigante twice, and on both occasions, Gigante was perfectly lucid and clear in his thinking. His testimony was backed up by two other high-profile turncoat witnesses, former Lucchese family acting boss Alphonse Little Al D'Arco and former Philadelphia crime family underboss Phil Leonetti. Leonetti. Uh, implicated Gigante in ordering the murder of several Bruno family members in the early 1980s. In 1993, Anthony Gaspipe Gasso. Gaspipe Gasso. Dude, what is up with these nicknames, man? They're pretty incredible. We had like no nicknames last week, and now everyone has a nickname. Well, that's Irish and Italian. True. That's the difference. Um, former underboss of the Lucchese crime family implicated Gigante in a 1986 plan to have Casso kill new Gambino boss John Gotti, underboss Frank DeCiccio, and Gotti, bro- Gotti's brother, sorry, Gene Gotti, due to the unsanctioned 1985 murder of John Gotti's former boss, Paul Castellano. Casso said that he and future Lucchese boss Victor Amuso got the contract from Gigante and then Lucchese boss Anthony Tony Ducks Corello. <laughs> Tony, hey, hey, so, um, sir, uh, you are here under FBI witness testimony to um, talk about Vincent Gigante. Can you state your name, please? Yeah, talk to my brother, Little Dick. <laughs> Little Dick. So, uh, word on the street is, is that your name is Tony Ducks? Yeah, it's because I quack when I come. <laughs> I'm just going to drink to that. That was great. I think he came into that sock that uh, that's on your microphone right now. Oh, that was last week's sock. Holy <laughs> hell! In June Smells 19- like a pole over here. <laughs> In June 1993, largely on the basis of these informers' testimony, prosecutors won a superseding indictment that charged Gigante with helping orchestrate the Windows racket, being the Genovese boss and ordering numerous murders. At a sanity hearing in the spring of 1996, Savino, Gravano, D'Arco, and Leonetti all testified that it was common knowledge Gigante's insanity was an elaborate ruse. Federal prosecutors from Brooklyn backed up this testimony with a rebuttal opinions from other psychiatrists. A judge sided with the prosecution and ruled Gigante was competent to stand trial. Oh, no, he's fucked. The trial, finally held in the summer of 1997, proved to be an anti-climax. In, on July 25th, a lot of talking about climaxing here. Yeah, I'm also a little jealous that we didn't get to, like, 
see any of the tail end in the public media about all these like mob bosses. Like right. the 90s, the mid 90s were like the stop of all organized crime and yeah. we didn't get to see anything. I was two. This would have been awesome. This would have been great, man. Do we, our generation, like us, I guess from the age of 25 to just whenever now, like your teenage, yeah. um, the mafia has has not been no, around not at all. for our generation. Our generation knows the mafia by old documentaries and The Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, that's literally it, man. It's kind of sad. I've always uh, I've always wanted to know more. On July fifth, uh, ju- sorry, July twenty fifth, nineteen ninety seven, Gigante was convicted on eight counts of racketeering and conspiracy charges, d- despite his lawyers and psychiatrist claims that he had been legally insane for more than thirty years. The jury convicted him on all but the murder charges, which carried a sentence of life imprisonment without parole. In December nineteen ninety seven, he was sentenced to twelve years in federal prins- prison by Judge Jack B. Weinstein. And we drink to that one again, who declared that Gigante had been. Brought to bay in his declining years after decades of vicious criminal tyranny you sir may go fuck yourself is what that judge literally just said yeah they always get him on the racketeering they never get him on the murder i love how judge i think judges are literally hired by like the vocab that they can use you know brought to bay which is just a weird platitude yeah um after decades of vicious criminal tyranny yeah Tyranny. I you love could, that word. You could just use, like, this person has an IQ of, what do you say, 39? You can, <laughs> 39. You can just use regular words. Yeah. That will be sufficient for him to understand. He, 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 lo- he honestly probably thought that he got off after that sentence. Yeah, I was just about to say. He probably looked to his lawyer, like, to He's his like, right, and was like, uh, hey, uh, what, what do you say? What do you say? Uh, I'm just pretending he has. I, I'm pretty sure he has a lisp. Not yeah. sure. Not sure at all, but he just, like, looks. Let's and, just give him one. Yeah. Uh, so what do you, what do you say? What do you say? He says something about about tyrann- ty- tyranny, tyranny. I think he went with. Yo, what a, that mean? <laughs> I think he went with the boxing and then drew it to Mike Tyson. Lennox Lewis, I'ma eat your children, Lennox. <laughs> My back is broke. <laughs> I also, by the end of that, like gave him kind of a gangster, like uh, I don't know. That was that was a bad uh, bad impersonation. It's by right, boy. We'll work on I'm it. working on him. Like I said, it's only the second episode. Yeah. We're gonna do a bunch of these. In 2002, Gigante was indicted on charges of racketeering and obstruction of justice. So he's in jail and he's getting charged with more shit. Federal prosecutors in Brooklyn allege that Gigante continued to rule the Genovese crime family from prison and also accused him of causing a seven-year delay in his previous trial by feigning insanity. Also indicted was his son Andrew, who was accused of delivering messages from Gigante to family leaders while in prison. Dude, I think I would feel worse about dragging my children into the life of crime more than I would any of my actual crimes, I think. Yeah, but these, you're sending them up to fail. Yeah, but these people are at such a shit shitty person level that they view their kids as extra help. I really don't yeah. think they have any like empathy or like true compassion for their actual like blood right well it's the old mentality like in the 1800s you know early 1900s that you have kids so they can help with the fucking farm exactly and so they can help the family and uh, maybe that's what they're thinking there. Faced with this evidence on April 7, 2003, the day the trial was due to start, Gigante pleaded guilty to obstructing justice. He admitted to intentionally delaying his previous racketeering trial and misleading numerous psychiatrists over the previous three decades about his mental state. As a part of his plea deal, prosecutors dropped the racketeering charges that would have brought on a lengthy trial and assured that he would die in prison if convicted. He was 75 at the time. 
Instead, he had another three years added to his sentence. Andrew potentially faced 20 years in prison, but he got two years and a $2 million fine. That's a hefty fine right there. He has the money. Yeah, probably. In 2005, Gigante's health started to decline. He was moved from the Federal Correctional Institution, uh, Fort Worth, to Springfield, Missouri. In November 2005, Flora Edwards, his lawyer, sued officials at the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, to transfer him to an acute care hospital. Transferred to a private medical facility, he rallied physically. In early December, he was transferred back to Springfield, where he died 10 days later on December 19th, 2005. So they just, they put him into this, like, really nice hospital, and then they were like, oh, he's getting, nah, fuck that. Nah, he's dying in prison. We're bringing him back. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of a little savage on their part. Yeah, that's all right. I mean, he definitely deserves it. Can you imagine being from, like, New York and then having to serve time in fucking Missouri? Or what was it, Fort... What was the other it one? It was Springfield, it was Missouri, Springfield, yeah. and Fort Worth. So Fort yeah. Worth is kind of a city, but it's definitely on the mm. outskirts. Springfield, Missouri is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it I has mean. to be. Missouri, the show-me state. Jesus. Personal life here. Psychiatrist Eugene Diadamo. It's on the payroll. <laughs> who's Gicante's primary treating psychiatry. He's definitely on, on the, the payroll. Show. So I'm um, from 1973 to 1989. It said he has been diagnosed since 1969. All right, you saw him from 73, but he's been diagnosed at 69. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fucking right. As suffering from schizophrenia, paranoid type with acute exacerbations, which result in hospitalization. Dude, this guy is making me work for every word I just said. Yeah, but I mean, I believe that he has had all those things. I think that he wasn't feigning the insanity as much as people think he was. Yeah. Yeah, he could probably carry on a conversation. Yeah, his IQ was probably you know more than 39 yeah but this guy got pummeled in the head for years boxing he has been he never really had a formal education he dropped out in the ninth grade um yeah i i don't think he's a smart human criminally he was very smart but he probably has some of these side effects yeah mental issues yeah Yeah, exactly as do most boxers yeah Jesus. Um, his list of alleged mental illnesses later included dementia, uh, pugilistica. Wow, I messed that one up. And Alzheimer's disease. He allegedly had to take daily medication for these illnesses, which included prescriptions for Valium and Thorazine. Since 1969, Diadimo reported that Gigante has been treated on 20 separate occasions for psychiatric disorders at St. Vincent's Hospital in Harrison, New York. So it wasn't bullshitting. So, later I mean, in life, he actually had these things. Yeah, I think later in, in life. Neurological diseases. But that's just like every old person has those. Dude, not that to not, not that extent. I don't know, man. Alzheimer's when you're 75 is pretty common, I feel like. Dementia, too. Losing that memory. I don't know, man. I don't know 175. <laughs> Thank God I'm not that old. I don't, I don't know 175-year-old that has either of those. Okay. And I know a lot of 75-year-olds. You do? No. Bingo night? Was that your volunteer shit in yeah, high I'm school? Yeah, I'm a uh, cougar hunter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's like an extra cougar. Like, what would be on top of a cougar? I, I don't, don't even know. What's like a better ass? I just shit? like when they can't walk. <laughs> you're, you're putting that sock on them, dog. That microphone. <laughs> Um, these visitations all coincided with news of criminal indictments being handed down against him. Psychologists and mental health workers said at his trial that from 1969 to 1995, he had been confirmed 28 times in hospitals for treatment of hallucinations that he had dementia rooted in organic brain damage. He's got to lay off the LSD. That's my one treatment for him. <laughs> He's got to stay off that MK Ultra, Whitey yeah. Bulger shit. 
Oh man, did you look up MK Ultra? I did not, but that was a pretty interesting yeah, topic. You, dude, that shit's crazy. Uh, he had open heart surgery in 1998 and another cardiac 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 operation in 1996 before his racketeering trial. He allegedly was prescribed to take on a day to day basis five milligrams of Valium, hundred milligrams of thor- Thorazine, and thirty milligrams thirty milligrams sorry of Dalmain. Dude, he was zooted. Yeah. He was zooted and booted. Dude, Valium ain't no joke, man. Neither was any of the yeah. other drugs, man. Yeah, that's crazy. He maintained a residence in Old Tappan, New Jersey, with his wife, Olympia Gripa, whom he married in 1950, and their five children. He maintained his second family in a townhouse located at 67 East 77th Street near Park Ave in the Upper East Side, Manhattan, with his longtime mistress, Olympia Esposito, and their one son, Vincent, and two daughters. So he literally had... Dual families. Yeah. That's that's, a, that's like just a whole level, new level of scumbagginess. Yeah. Dude, honestly, so that's the it. That's that's it. That's that's Vincent Gigante's whole life right there. That's unbelievable. Yeah, dude, I honestly like kind of fuck with him. He wasn't like that bad of a dude. Yeah, I mean, he, was, he did have like, I mean, aside from the second family, he had, wasn't really involved in a lot of murders. He had no. an attempted murder. He was just more about making money illegally. Yeah, and he was at one time the the capo de tutti capi or whatever the, yeah. the boss of all bosses. He definitely ordered a lot of murders. Um, it doesn't. It sounds like maybe when he was let's see when he was an enforcer um, for the Genovese crime family early on, he probably killed a decent amount of people or just beat the shit out of them. Or yeah, yeah. I mean, dude, when if you're a mafia um, boss, you should enforce boxers. You should enforce Italian boxers who can rise oh, up. Man. That's that's incredibly smart. I mean, man. at the end of the day, what else is this guy gonna do in society? Right. What else is he gonna do? He can either box and be mm-hmm. a professional boxer, or work some shit job. Or he got into this crime deal super young, saw obvious benefits from it, and just kept going with it. Dude, when your brain is literally pudding, like his was. Yeah. Uh, dude, I always think about this, man. If I was living in New York City in 1950, just as I am now, put me in that place right now. Um, a, what would I be doing? But B, how would New York City be different? Like, could you literally like feel the crime walking around? For sure. Like, you know that if you walk into like Fiore's down the street, Fiore's, by the way, if you're ever in Hoboken, New Jersey, whoever's listening to this, literally the best roast beef sandwich you'll ever have. Probably the best meal you'll ever have, and Ryan is nodding. Yeah, um, just my, it's it's my death row meal. Yes, for sure, one hundred percent. But like these these storefronts were were fronts for the mob. Yeah, you know it's I don't know. I I've, I mean it's a different different time, obviously, but but yes, like it's not the New York that everybody's used to today. With it's just a different type of people. Like when you think of New York today, it's just like rich, successful young people that are like looking to make a name yeah. for themselves in some way you speak and, dirty yeah and like that and back then it's just it's just crime that's all it is dude new york was super crime ridden and gross even until like the mid 90s yeah. look at the seven five yeah. like we bring yeah. this up again but like it's incredible how much it's changed in basically like 25 years yeah that's i'm not yeah i mean for from a from an overall like deep dive into this guy his life i i really don't I mean, I obviously see problems with this, but like his capacity, uh, like a thought process, mm-hmm. I just don't 
blame the guy. The guy's like almost handicapped. Right. He was a boxer mm-hmm. and he started this young and saw benefits from it. Like, yeah. Why not the fucking guy? Why not use your size and strength? to make a bunch of money for yourself. And these are the only people that you have known your entire yeah. life. So you're a product of your environment. Like, why not? How, the, how the, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? Move to Missouri? Yeah. Your old <laughs> like, brother, your brothers are doing this shit. You're like, you're in New York city, which is completely mob filled. You come from an Italian family. Yeah. You're pretty much born to do this. Dude. And if you kind of read into some of the Italian American entertainers, boxers, sportsmen from back in the day. Everyone was on the take, man. Yeah. Frank Sinatra knew all the fucking mobsters because he's from right here in Hoboken and would go sing at the clubs in New York City and Jersey City and Union City. Of course, like he's gonna interact with these people who own these clubs who are mob affiliated and all this shit. Rocky Marciano, if you watch fucking Raging Bull at, okay. later in his life, was singing and, and talking to, you know, mob clubs basically for a living. So it's it's pretty crazy, man. It's a crazy, crazy life these guys led. Um, that was Vincent Gigante once again. Um, Ryan, what was your uh, most scummy? I'd probably say the hit on his boss, like his mentor. That'd be like yeah. me trying to kill a, a figure that helped me gain success in some way. That That's scummy, man. Like no matter what, I, I, that's that's the worst. Yeah, dude, that's kind of like the mob way, man. If the, if you like have intel that they're gonna fucking talk or like that they're doing some shady shit, they're they're dead, man. I get that. I don't get why people in the mob try to do shady shit or why they they try to like go against their family. It makes no sense. You are gonna end up dead. They're would, going to find out. I would love to see some data on like people that have turned or are about to turn and have not wound up dead. True. True. Yeah, I'd love you're to right. see it. Um, my most scummy is him bringing his son into it. That was like the one mm. thing that, that really stuck out. I don't know why I'm like hung up on that because I know that that happens like literally every time. Like I know John Gotti's son was involved. Um, great 60 minutes with him, by the way, where he like told his dad that he's leaving the family basically in jail while John Gotti was in jail. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable. His dad was pissed. Stones on that guy. Yeah, man. But uh, I, dude, I don't know. I just like I don't. I'm not a big believer in bringing your kids in, into it unless your kid's LeBron James Jr. and you make him into a sick basketball player. LeBron so. James. LeBron yeah, no, I'm, James. I'm with you on that. Um, that that definitely was. I just I know this guy's like capabilities, and I don't think he has any regard for that. I don't think the kid had a, uh, a choice. No, no, at all. I don't think at all. Not at all. Awesome, guys. Well, uh, yeah, that was the second episode of, Mer- of the Merlot and the Mob podcast. We definitely shortened this one up. Um, give this a review and a rate on iTunes. Um, iTunes is this weird, funky algorithm um, where if you rate and subscribe and review, uh, we move up charts. I know this is early on, so not a whole lot of people just are listening to this. Just do it. Just do it. Literally, like, say um, grilled cheese sandwich on the review and give five stars. Say anything just fucking do it say crusty cum sock like we don't care just say anything just and that would be do it that'd be a big help because uh shit man we're just trying to create out here use the left side is it the left side or the right side the Honestly, creative side i don't know I'm trying to use that creative side of the brain whichever side it is the wine's not letting me use either side of my brain yeah i didn't get this that drunk this time but uh it was definitely a shorter episode literally like cut in half so. yeah it's good Good. All right. We're going to keep it at this length. Going to try to um, here moving on. But uh, I'm glad you guys tuned in. Remember, rate, review, and subscribe. And uh, we will see you next week. Bye. Peace.